Hello, I am here with Dr. Graham Daniel Willis at Cambridge University Centre for Development Studies, and we are going to talk about his fascinating new book, The Killing Consensus, which is about crime, inequality, power, violence in the state. So we know that Latin America is marked by glaring inequalities, and one of these inequalities relates to death. So one district in 2000 had a homicide rate of 107 people per 100,000, and that was 80 times higher than wealthier parts of Sao Paulo. But then it suddenly fell, plunging by 90% over a decade. So that sounds great. Um, but why did the homicide rate fall? Yeah, great. So Sao Paulo is, of course, a city that's very unequal. Um, it's been unequal historically, largely in terms of urbanization, but also in terms of how people are connected to politics. So in order to think about why it fell, we really need to think about well, what was it that was making it high in the first place. Mm. So if we take a, a map of the city of Sao Paulo, we see that in wealthier areas, uh, people have historically been quite safe. Homicide rates have been similar to, say, even the city of London, mm -hmm. where other parts of the city, which are informally, often informally urbanized places, or um, places largely at a distance from, from power, mm. were the places where there was a lot of violence. And that violence was largely defined by, uh, by fighting between different gangs. So you had gang members controlling city blocks or street corners, um, fighting amongst each other. And it was crazy. It was really bloody. It was traumatic. It was terrible. But it was also numbing. So lots of people talked about that period as being a time when you would just get used to seeing people dead mm. on the streets. Mm. Um, now, one of the responses to that by the Brazilian state was to, was to hyper-incarcerate, was to go out and to arrest everybody that they possibly could from those parts of the city. And you can imagine what that means in racial terms. You can imagine what that means in poverty terms. You can imagine what that means in lots of other yeah. kinds of terms. Mm. Um, basically, what that did was it filled the prison system. I filled the prison system with a population of people who have always been at a very, at a very, um, very uh, distant position from, from the state and from politics. Mm. Um, the prison system was very similar. It was a, a, a space where people were fighting regularly, where there was no order, where the logic was throw the prisoners in and go to hell. It mm. doesn't matter what happens to you on the inside. Let your violence consume yourself, mm. right? And what we saw was that um, a system of order emerged in that place. Um, and uh, the decline in Sao Paulo in homicide in those historically violent parts of the city um, is where that has, uh, has occurred most acutely. So if we look at where things were violent from, you know, through the 1990s, it's precisely those kinds of places um, that have since also seen a very sharp decline. Um, the parts, the wealthier parts of the city where we have homicide rates similar to the city of London or Toronto mm. or, you know, or, um, or say Paris even, um, have seen a very limited decline. So why did it fall in those poorer parts? Well, so the, the larger story really is about, well, how, how is that process, that mm. policy, the reaction to violence in those parts mm. of the city connected to the prison system? And how has the routine flow of people from the urban periphery to the prisons and back again um, created a different logic of order and governance um, that is very well connected in, every way, in everyday kinds of logics um, and ultimately speaks to how people have tried to solve their own problems of insecurity when the state is not doing it.
So how did people, so who were these people that managed to get crime down? Was mm -hmm. it that there were urban gangsters that decided to take it into their own hands? And how right. did these urban, this urban crime, organized crime, right. manage to control it? Did yeah. they want to control it? Yeah. So in the 1990s, what we saw was there was a gigantic prison massacre, 1992, mm. in Karanjiru prison. Mm. Um, 111 people were killed by the police, riot police who just went in and basically shot people in their cells. Um, that was uh, an apex moment in, in the scope of violence within the prison mm. system. Immediately after that, a number of different prisoners organized in response and said, uh, you know, in written terms, in what is now a statute which is accessible all over the place, no longer will we accept this kind of violence right. on the part of the state. Mm. And also, and this is an, an acute point, no longer will we accept that violence amongst ourselves. Mm. So this violence which we've confronted, which was a violence... So how, sorry, sorry, how did, logistically, how did prisoners collectively organize right. within prisons? Right. Wasn't that tricky? Right. It, we would think it would be, mm. right. Except that the logic of Brazilian prisons is literally throw them in, lock the door, and whatever happens on the inside okay. is whatever happens. That has led to a whole different kind of uh, disaggregation of power, of the possibility of new kinds of rules, and of the provision of all sorts of different things. So like cooking their own food, providing different goods, toiletries, mm. everything, which are all relative commodities. But isn't there status. a collective action problem for uh, organized crime with different fractions competing over different territories? Mm. Why would they collectively decide, mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. not shoot each other? Mm -hmm. This is, the, this is the key point, right? So Bra different Brazilian cities have had prison gangs in mm. lots of different ways, mm. and often they've been very fragmented. Mm. So the city of Rio de Janeiro has, uh, well, today has three different drug trafficking organizations mm. or organized crime groups mm. within the prison system, plus an additional one, which is a sort of para-police mm. militia organization. So in almost any prison in Rio de Janeiro, the cell blocks would be divided into those different groups. Okay. They arrest somebody on the street, one of the first things they're going to say is, where in the city do you come from? Are you affiliated with one of these gangs? And they send them to a particular block of a particular right. prison that's associated right. with So it's formally, in institutional terms, segregated according okay. to those different. Um, that was not the case in Sao Paulo in 1992. It was one large prison group. Um, everybody was thrown in together. There was no prison gang at that time like there was in the city of Sao Paulo, mm. in, in, in Rio de Janeiro. Okay. So we had the possibility out of a sort of sense of collective suffering in the acute and really bloody nature of that violence. Right, that shared collective experience right. and being going through that together, that sort of enabled a sense right. of solidarity. A solidarity and, and a very clear sense of there's a common good here which we are which we are missing, right? And if we somehow recognize that. Right. Right. And so it was a this massacre was a catalyzing force mm. for them to establish this sense of of identity. Sort of critical juncture. Right. Says, yeah. yeah. And I, and there would have been of course charismatic leaders who would yeah, have said yeah. so like my mm. rules are the rules mm. that matter mm. and mm. and those rules of course were not just like rules that you said so you can't do that that's not okay to do that it was like these things were backed up with like serious violence okay. um, you know so if you did not follow one of these rules they would they would they would kill you that was it mm. um, but so out of that moment we had the establishment of a set of rules in the prison system that 
came to be seen by the prisoners themselves as very legitimate. So they, through this shared experience, they developed collective uh, solidarity and they decided to regulate violence within the prison. Yeah. But how did that then map onto a, a, an impact outside the right. prison with the, this decline in homicide that we saw? Right. So around that time, in uh, 1992, there weren't a lot of prisoners in, in the Sao Paulo mm. prison system. There were maybe about 45,000 or so. But what, we, what happened was, this was a moment, and this is a very interesting point about the larger sort of global mm. connections, mm. the Sao Paulo government started to shift towards neoliberal logics. Mm. The slimming of the state, the paring back of social programs, and the advancement of a very clear hardline security policy. Mm. They started to build prisons like crazy, they started to arrest thousands of people on the street, and they started to fill the prison system in dramatic ways with poor people mm. of largely Afro-Brazilian descent mm. from the urban periphery of the city of Sao Paulo, mm. which was a mega city of 20 million people. So, right. so there came to be a regular flow in and out of prison of people yes. connecting those so spaces. So sort of institutionalizing those ideas exactly right. right and so and so so my book and and some of the larger work takes um, for example the the idea of Loic Vaquant which mm -hmm. is that there is he talks about it like a deadly symbiosis mm -hmm. that you have an analytical and, a, and an everyday similarity between the ghetto in the American city and the prison right and mm -hmm. that the flow between those two mm -hmm. spaces is much more normal and logical than it is between those spaces and say wealthy parts of downtowns or uh, or uh, privileged spaces in cities. But do ideas and performances really travel like that between different spaces? Like I might act slightly differently at Cambridge Formal Hall mm. to how I might act with my family at home. Mm -hmm. So I'm the same person, but I've been to both environments, but my yeah. behavior is mediated by context. Right. So why did that happen in Sao Paulo? Yeah, so key issue, key issue is that it's not just that this was a sense of like common good and we need mm. to protect ourselves. Mm. It was, there is a common good for criminals. We are criminals. We are people who do crime, basically as a as a kind of as a kind of occupation, right? Mm -hmm. um, what that meant was that anybody who saw themselves as as being a part of that category mm -hmm. knew that they were likely to end up in prison, right? Knew that they were likely okay. to need the protection sure. of the organization that controlled the the prison system. Now, um, what that depends upon is an understanding of the likelihood that you will end up in prison based on a sense of the police are after me. Right, because the police of this mass there. incarceration, right. sure. So how, but how do you logistically, and mm -hmm. I have limited experience here, how do you logistically do crime without homicides? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. all these organized criminals, you know, fighting over who has which drug mm -hmm. areas, etc., or mm -hmm. fighting over who controls what. Mm -hmm. Is it like a sort of A-team style thing where nobody dies? Right. Or, you know, right. how do you do crime without killing? Right. Well, so this is the thing about inequality, right? So Sao Paulo, you know, as places like Johannesburg or other kinds of mm. places, is like the most stark in terms of inequality, mm. right? You can go to Sao Paulo and see Ferraris passing underneath overpasses where people are living in cardboard boxes. Yeah. Um, crime in Sao Paulo is an everyday thing that pervades mm. everything. Mm. So part of my work was spending time in, in um, police stations mm literally watching and observing so like what kinds of, of, of reports are, are people filing what kinds of crime are they experiencing and how are police reacting mm. to that I remember one evening when I was in this one neighborhood precinct mm. and uh, in the span of an hour and a half 
um, we had about 16 people walk in the front door saying, I've just been carjacked. My, take, my, my, my car's been taken mm. away. Right. And the police were like, they thought that was funny. They thought it was, okay, well, isn't that funny? Like, so this happens a lot, but like mm. something must be in the water tonight. Right. But there's a mundane sense of the way that crime pervades everyday right. life. There's banality, no, yeah. yes, a banality. There's no real objection on the part of police. Mm. Um, people have adapted mm. to this being a mm. part of like their everyday circumstances, mm. right? And that, of course, has led to like modifications of the urban infrastructure. Yeah. Right? It drives gated communities. It yeah. drives the purchase of of bulletproof cars, mm. of of private security, mm. of all sorts of things. Mm. So that has become a very mundane part mm. of like mm. life in the city of Sao Paulo. Yeah. The homicide stuff is is largely still confined to like the victim perpetrator mm-hmm. complex, mm-hmm. as we mm-hmm. might talk about it. Um, it does happen a lot. Uh, well, less often that you know. So the the sort of poor person from the mm-hmm. part from the you know from the periphery of the city would come into the wealthier parts of the city and kill somebody. Mm-hmm. But largely, this is an economic crime type. But even question. even within the poor areas where people mm-hmm. where there was organized crime, mm-hmm. how, how did they? So it was just a, a political will within urban criminals to reduce crime, and then they were able to do it? Yeah, so, so I mean, in, in a large sense, yes. What, what they said was, okay, so we have this whole new group of people in the prison system of Sao mm-hmm. Paulo, mm-hmm. started in the one prison, then spread to other mm-hmm. prisons, mm-hmm. basically when the politicians said, well, how do we stop this thing? Let's pull the leaders out of this one prison, send them to other prisons. Mm-hmm. They attempted to sever the linkages that mm-hmm. way. What they did was to spread it to all sure. these other prisons. So, um, so what we started to see was that you know people had a common sense of going to back to the city itself, mm. um, and there were pre-existing gangs right. that actually still exist today, but that and those sen- local senses of identity exist in 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 those same kinds of spaces. But what the this organized crime group that has uh, come to exist says is fine if all of those things exist, but we are establishing uh, lei do crime, a law of crime, or an etica do crime, which is an ethic of crime. Wow! Under which anybody who believes that they are a criminal mm. must observe what we are saying. There's no killing unless you have pre-authorized approval. Um, there is uh, there is uh, you know a set of different things that you can't do in terms of the relative wow. times of crime. Um, and anybody who wants to be a part of our organization must pay membership dues. Yeah. Crikey! Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's really fascinating, and, yeah. and I should add uh, to the listeners that your your ethnographic insights in the book it's a real pleasure <laughs> to read. It's like one of the most beautifully crafted academic books. Thank um, you. Thank you. So this new this now we have this reduced homicide rate. Is that is that piece a good thing? Do you think? Uh, yeah, a very problematic case, right? I mean, so. In the book, and in a way I'm thinking about this more broadly, mm. you know, it's very difficult to disaggregate this from democracy and context of sure. equality, sure. right? Sure, this is a sort of longer-term piece in parts of cities where people have never had a good relationship with the state, mm. right? So what we're really talking about is a, is a sort of bottom-up agency, um, agency-riddled process mm. of people mm. like organizing to find collective solutions, mm. right? which is very similar to the way we talk about informality anyway. Yeah. It's a collective solution process. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. build their houses together. They find infrastructure together. Yeah, they make informal yeah. transportation together. They, right. um, and security is a logical extension of that. 
it's it's you know if this is a problem that we saw that we are facing mm. together we will find a solution together right mm. so that has filled a void of course which the state has never filled mm. um, the problem is of course that like that very logic of provision of security and taxation basically fits like the ideas of the state, the theories of the state itself. Right, Monopoly yeah. on violence in a given territory, right? So <laughs> yeah. the right to kill in this is the sovereign. Quite. So the relationship really becomes, well, what is, what is, what is the connectedness between that and the state, mm. right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, on the one hand, it's like if the state leaves that sphere alone, then, you know, maybe it's okay. But on the other hand, if we reflect on like the theory of the state itself, States are, by definition, themselves very violent, right? They make distinctions in populations about who should be secured yeah, yeah. from whom, mm. right? And that's a whole, a whole other discussion about who is the other, how do we create that, mm. how is that reproduced in everyday life, um, and, and who benefits and who loses. And there's almost always a loser. Sure. Right? There's almost always a loser. So the question becomes, well, perhaps it becomes, well, what is the scale of the population that loses? Mm. In Sao Paulo, it's a huge scale. Right, and they've created something out of that. Um, does that rival the state? Right. How much? What is the sense? What is the? What are the so ways in which it coexists? How does the state perceive this success? Yeah. I mean, is it something they yeah. celebrate, welcome, yeah. ask more of? Yeah. So I mean, I argue that we need to then obviously contest the very idea of the state. Mm -hmm. Let's pull this thing apart and say, you know, is the state really a logical institutional thing which we can observe? Mm. Um, we can follow, we can analyze, how do people within it make sense of it, right? Um, and, and, and what I saw basically was that police themselves often were ta will talk about the state in like the third person. Like, you know, o Estado needs to do this. Right. We are not actually the state. The state is like something else. And we are just a set of street level actors who are kind of like, you know, asserting law, but we also know that like, law in practice is like dramatically different mm. than law in the books yeah we're sure, also sure. trying to survive in our own way because yes. we do routinely get assassinated because yeah. we live in the kinds of places that um you know that the pcc controls mm -hmm. this organized crime group yeah. controls um you know so so i say basically all right so we have like this everyday survival for police officers including the homicide investigation mm. and detectives that i was looking at is very different than the people who are benefiting from a yeah. system like this right so if the PCC is a drug trafficking organization making a ton of money um, and police are suffering dramatically under that circumstance, it's yes. not good for them. Yeah. It's not actually good for the criminals because they are routinely killed by the police as well, right? right? 800 people a year are killed by So by I suppose police. in um, development Somebody, language, it's sort of a reform coalition between organized crime and street-level policing. That's basically it, is that we have a kind of a, a cobbled-together everyday mm -hmm. solution, right? Um, yes, okay, so now I want to ask two questions that slightly go beyond the book. Um, so if these ho homicides and organized crime are partly a response to the global demand for illegal drugs, yeah. how do you think urban violence and organized crime in Sao Paulo might mm -hmm. be affected if people in the global north um, reduce their consumption of drugs mm -hmm. or, 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 or legalize it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would that affect urban violence in Sao Paulo? Yeah, key question. Um, so the war on drugs is obviously a very acute and very bad thing. Mm. Um, and it's been mobilized and militarized in really distinct ways against particular kinds of populations. Mm. Um, is it a good thing, say, to like legalize the use of some drugs or 
um, let's say that the circumstance in Sao Paulo was somehow connected to drug consumption in the United States or in the UK or whatever, would that actually reshape the circumstances of this place? What I basically argue is that the war on drugs is yet another iteration of a system of social control which has been exercised on these populations for a long time. Sure. That's not really a novel argument. That's mm -hmm. the way people argue, argue about violence against Afro-Americans in the United States. They say, well, you know, the war on drugs is a logical extension of slavery, mm -hmm. of Jim Crow, yes, yes. of redlining, of other kinds of things. Uh, what that means is, yes, let's push towards the end of the war on drugs, mm -hmm. but what's the next thing that's going to and let's be very suspicious about what the next thing that's going to come is. Mm. Is that the war on terror? I don't know. Is that something else yeah. that we haven't yet seen? I don't know. Right. So uh, you mentioned that um, America, and I wonder, uh, leaping slightly, asking maybe you to make a comparative point, why do we not see this, this dynamic that we see in Sao Paulo? Why do we not see it in America where there's the same mm. practice of poverty, inequality, mass incarceration, expectation of mm -hmm. mass incarceration? Are mm -hmm. the prisons different that people are too segmented in order to organize? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why, do, why hasn't America had this ethic of killing uh, yes, prisoners' revolution? Yeah, so um, yeah, the way I've been thinking about this is, is basically that, like, so the, here's where the state as a thing actually really becomes important, mm. right? Um, if in the city of Sao Paulo and in Brazil in general, the state has left a lot of people out of politics, yes. has seen them as largely irrelevant, mm. and I think that's a political act. Mm. I argue that it's a political act, that they, they mm. choose to mm. let people die. Mm. Massive amounts of people, they choose to let them die. Um, that exists at a scale that is very different than the way that kind of process happens mm. also mm. in the United States. right? So city of Chicago, for example, you know, there are a lot of quite similar dynamics, right? Gang warfare amongst mm. different groups, parts of cities which, which are very much at a distance from public policy, mm. um, where we see terrible schools, where we see you know, um, lots of gang presence, mm. where, um, where the state effectively has historically not really intervened in particular ways, except in terms of security. And policing. So what I think is that the, is that the state has become very prominent in those places in a, in a policing and security logic um, and has constrained them so much that it has limited the agency of people in those spaces to organize in alternative kinds of ways. Um, so if we were to take if we were to take a you know to think about this in terms of you know in terms of of um, relative spaces mm -hmm. The state consumes most of the space of a city like, like Chicago, whereas maybe it consumes only 65% of the city. What do you city. mean about consuming? What you mean in terms of where the urban policing is? Or? Right, in terms, of, in terms of the size of the population that it believes it must provide positive services for. Okay. Um, and so, and so, we, so here we're referring to favelas being neglected, sort of muddy hillsides being neglected, right. no-go zones in, right, in right. Sao Paulo. Right. So, I mean, and so one way to think about this would, would be to say, all right, so if we take the city of Sao Paulo, some people have said, well, you know, there's an argument that, that um, up to 60% of the city of Sao Paulo is informally urbanized. That means that the presence of the state is actually maybe only about like 
40% of the city, historically. That it's only seemed like 40% of the population is being deserving of good urbanization, um, infrastructure. Run people up and get people in prison if the state isn't present in these areas? Selective presence. Okay. Yeah, selective presence. So when do they go into these spaces? When do they not go into these spaces? Um, But also, that let's say that's that 40%, Mm. that place is saturated with police. Right. That place is also where people go to commit crime because that's where the wealth is, right? Okay. So if, you're, if you are an everyday criminal in the city of Sao Paulo, you sure will rob in the poorer parts of the city, um, but you will also go routinely to these other parts of the city to carjack or but to... But I thought the homicides were in the poor areas. Right, so that, that's, there's a dis- differentiation to okay. be made between the processes of killing and struggle right, for okay. order. Right, okay, and the processes of rounding people up. And, right, and okay. yes, exactly. And so, the, and so the, the kinds of people often that would be sent to prison um, would be people who are committing economic forms of crime, which are actually seen as you know much more problematic in Brazilian terms than homicides, because homicides they don't routinely affect wealthy people. Those are crimes of passion. Right. The routine kind of homicide that happens in the city of Sao Paulo is a young black man killing a young black man, um, and that's not politically objectionable. Yes. in that place. So right. what you're saying is then this, the homicide, uh, there has not been the ethic of, the ethic of organized crime, that hasn't occurred to such an extent in America because the state is too present. Right. The state is too present, so organized crime doesn't right. c- develop this solidarity because right. they're continually infiltrating, being controlled by the state. Right, right. So if we took the work of, say, um, you know, Alice Goffman, which is, there are lots of criticisms of her work, but but it but it's revelatory in a lot of ways, um, especially in how policing in the United States has become a proactive practice. Right. It's quota based. They're they're required to go out and fill quotas to arrest people to f- to fill the prison system. As highlighted in the Wire, for instance. Exactly in the Wire, and and we see that in other kinds of ways, right? So mm. we have private prisons. Mm. We need to fill those prisons yeah, in order to make yeah. money, mm. right? There's a, a there's a proactive like police are going out and finding criminals. Mm. They're not like sitting back and waiting for you know to mm. arrest somebody. They're like no, we're actually in order to justify our existence, we need stats. How do we get stats? We yes. arrest people, yeah. right? Um, that logic has not arrived in the city of Sao Paulo. And so, in American prisons, is there why is there not the possibility, or why hasn't it occurred this idea of prisoners collectively reflecting on their circumstances and deciding to reduce homicides? Why? Mm-hmm. Is it something about the spatial configuration, the architecture of these prisons? Or? Um, no, not actually. In fact, there is a lot. There are a lot of the similar kinds of practices mm. and processes happening. Um, David Scarback has done some of this work on, mm, on the underworld. Um, yeah, yeah, on the underworld, and he's described uh, California, which has uh, which has had a similar process of hyper incarceration. Mm. Um, and so prisons and that, you know, they have the three strikes law, which mm. basically you're locked away forever if yes. you get arrested three times. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, and they're revisiting that now because it's a, it's a crazy drain on everything. Amongst mm. many other things, it's, it's a crazy drain on budgets, which is, you know, a different mm. kind of a question. Um, but basically his argument and the, and the work of other people mm. says similar things is that, yeah, there are these collective solutions, but they are fractured in different kinds of ways. They're fractured along ethnic lines. They're fractured along racial lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see, we see uh, prisons in California being organized along uh, Latino lines, 
even fractures within that, mm. organized um, according to white supremacist groups right. and organized according to... So ethnic to heterogeneity impedes collective action. Right. And that is seen as a, I mean, that's obviously a very distinctly American mm. kind of, mm. you know, yeah. phenomenon. It's yeah. a very good reflection of... But what that means is that, is that um, you know, uh, he, what he argues and, and, is, and is, I think, really important is that um, there is still a drive to keep violence at a, at a, at a low level within mm. the prison system. Mm. So there are forms of agreement that exist between mm. these groups mm. in the prisons of California oh, really? wow. in order to sustain a kind of logic of order mm. and predictability, mm. um, which is very interesting. It's all very interdependent. But um, that logic of interdependence and, and, um, and you know, collaboration, as we might, we might say, amongst these different fractures, is not transposed in the same way to parts of cities. Each of those fractures is in its own yeah, kind of way. Yeah, so we would say um, Norteños, which are is, is the, the Northern California Latino gang, mm-hmm. um, uh, their logic would be transposed to parts of cities mm-hmm. where they come from, but they do not get along with white supremacist groups yeah, yeah. in those same kinds mm-hmm. of cities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't see the same process of you know, there's, there's a fracturing, there's a fighting that's always yeah. happening in those cities. That's very different in the city of Sao Paulo. Well, I think this illustrates a really nice and important broader academic point that how much we can learn from the global south to do this sort of comparative analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, so often we keep global north, south and global south, south separate. And yeah. by bridging these silos, we can think, well, what can we learn from Sao Paulo and how might this be better supported to support collective action elsewhere? Yeah. Um, so thank you, Graham, so much. My and pleasure. I would encourage people um, to read the book. It really is glorious. Um, thank you. Thank you.